America is under attack, literally, under attack by an enemy who is well-financed, well-supplied, and well-armed, and fully capable of declaring total war against the nation and its people, as we've seen in Colombia. Here in America, the enemy is already ashore, and for the first time, we are fighting and losing a war on our own soil. America is under attack. That was then-Senator Joe Biden on September 5, 1989, responding to a nationwide address by then-President George H.W. Bush unveiling a new national drug strategy. Bush's speech that night remains as an iconic moment in the history of the country's drug war. It's the one where he held up a bag of crack that he said had been sold across the street from the White House. A scary claim that turned out to be something of a fraud. In fact, a young African-American teenager from a poor neighborhood in Washington had been lured to Lafayette Park by the DEA to make the sale in order to provide a prop for the president's speech. But less well-remembered was Biden's talk that same night, a speech filled with over-the-top rhetoric that essentially argued the Bush administration wasn't being tough enough on drugs. We'll look back at Biden's days as a hardline drug warrior and explore what it tells us about the Democratic presidential candidate then and now on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, we have spent a bit of time on this podcast remembering the Bush speech uh, with the bag of crack and uh, how the young kid from uh, Northeast Washington was lured by the DEA in order to make that sale. It's been the subject of documentaries. I think I was interviewed for two of them last year. And I had completely forgotten that it was Joe Biden who provided the response to that speech and where Biden was coming from. I mean, just the rhetoric, uh, America under attack, we need another D-Day. We'll play later a clip at the end where he expresses concern for his wife, uh, Jill, unloading the groceries and being assaulted by some junkie. It was all very much part of what the rhetoric was back then about what a lot of people perceived to be is a serious threat to law and order and public safety. Yeah, it was called the war on drugs. And and all of the language was martial and it was about attacks and battles and all of that. It's amazing to think of that in light of where the Democratic Party is today. And not just the Democrats, actually. I mean, drug reform, to some extent, has been one of the few Something areas Trump where there's been... Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and also, particularly where Joe Biden is now versus where he was then, which we should talk about. And, you know, obviously, the context of the times. I mean, some of these policies, I think the bill in the Senate passed something like 95 to 4. It was bipartisan. But... 
it's important to remember that there's a difference between someone just voting for a bill and someone leading the battle. And Joe Biden was a drug warrior who was leading this battle and so therefore has to accept a measure of accountability that maybe others don't. And we'll get into all of that with Eric Sterling. It's a fascinating subject. The whole issue has been scrambled in so many ways that are so interesting. Right, exactly. And just, you know, one more beat on that. This was rhetoric that we heard from Biden in that speech, but it translated into policy, most famously, five years later, the 1994 crime bill. But we've got just the guy to take us back to this era and remind us what it was all about and what went on. Eric Sterling, a former assistant counsel to the House Crime Committee, and then later the executive director of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. Eric, welcome to Skullduggery. Michael, Daniel, it's a pleasure to be on Skullduggery today. So, yeah, that Biden speech, I don't know if if you had remembered it. I hadn't certainly recalled it, but listening to it today, what are your thoughts? It's chilling in its extremity. It's frightening where he taught, you know, punishment swift, sure, severely. We're going to hold every drug user accountable. Violence is spewing out all over America. Violent drug offenders are committing 100,000 crimes a day. The language of fear was so shocking to contemporary ears. But it was familiar. It was, it was terribly familiar to the rhetoric that was regular throughout the 1980s on both sides of the aisle. And I remember some number of years ago going to the National Library of Medicine and looking at the language used in the 1920s around narcotics, that the, the language that the Hearst newspapers used and the, the imagery of dragons and skeletons and snakes depicting uh, the drug menace and the foreign drug menace We've been there before. You know, as I listened to it, I was thinking of the kind of language used in the early 1950s around the fear of the communists, that there was a, a true panic and there, wasn't, that we, there was nothing too outlandish to do to protect children and mothers and families from the menace of drugs was the language we were hearing. Right. And one point that I think is worth making clear is that this rhetoric and this view of the drug war was bipartisan, as we see from Biden's speech. And I think that's forgotten today. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Ava DuVernay, the accomplished filmmaker, made that documentary that was on net. Yeah, 13th, that portrayed the drug war as sort of a racist attack on minorities, that this was all about controlling and imprisoning African-Americans and Hispanics who were using drugs. But it is worth remembering that the impetus to do that cut across party lines and racial lines. I mean, Charlie Rangel was uh, the African-American congressman from Harlem, was one of the most uh, vociferous drug war- warriors that would have endorsed all all of that rhetoric we heard in Joe Biden's speech. And I, I think that's that's kind of forgotten because there are those on the left who want to portray this as an example of American racism. And I'm just not 
maybe there's an element of that there, but the fact that you had so many, the Congressional Black Caucus that was totally behind all of this rhetoric and policies suggests otherwise to me. Michael, just quickly, I had been called to testify in two federal courts in trials alleging the racially discriminatory character of the federal sentencing. And the way I explain it is that racial imagery was used. We, members of Congress talked about Jamaicans and Dominicans, where the, the problem was and who the people were who were going to be the, the great menace. And there was a lot of racial language and imagery used. It was bipartisan. But, but I then think how do you explain the application the... of this law? When you look at how the Justice Department under both parties overwhelmingly disproportionately focused on African-Americans. The crack cocaine cases are the best example. Congress didn't intend that crack be used to punish black people, but it was certainly the consequence. Right, right. No, I agree with that. The impact was, but remember, the reason the Congressional Black Caucus and most African-American political leaders in the United States were backing these policies is because the drugs, crack in particular, was viewed as disproportionately impacting inner city African-American uh, majority neighborhoods. That's right. Yeah, I went back and because I was thinking the same thing that Mike was just talking about, a considerable majority of the black congressional caucus supported it. Kurt Schmoke, the first black mayor from Baltimore, who was I think one of the first American politicians to really speak about a legalization also supported the 1994 crime bill. But when I went back, and you'll remember this because you were involved, it looked to me like some of this was black mayors in big cities where there was a very serious crime problem wanting to deal with this problem. But there was also an element of party loyalty when it came down to the vote. And we need to support Bill Clinton. That's what some of the stories since then have, have said. Is that your recollection? There was that. You have to remember that the 94 crime bill was voted on twice, that there, there was a version that passed the House and then the Republicans blocked in the Senate because they, they said it wasn't tough enough. The first 94 crime bill, you know, infamously had a lot of money for what was in shorthand midnight basketball, that there was a lot of community anti-crime activity, crime prevention, and even in the 30-some billion dollars of the 94 crime bill, much of which never got appropriated, there was a lot of things that we would think of as reform-oriented, community development, housing, school cooperatives, jobs, uh, and so forth. What got funded were the prisons and the police, um, and that's what we remember. But it, it was at a moment when Newt Gingrich and the Republicans had something called the Contract for America as part of their election campaign. And anti-crime activity was a, one of the major planks of their contract. And they used, they used that to, to block the Democratic bill. And, and the, the compromise bill was the one we now remember. Yeah. And a big part of the politics in 94, this was Bill Clinton, who was trying to protect his right flank, you know, triangulation. We're not going to allow the Republicans to come after us as being soft on crime. So that was also part of the motivation, presumably, on the part of Democrats who were trying to stay together and support their president. So, Eric, I, I want to get to the 94 crime bill uh, in a little more depth. But just, you know, this the speech we're talking about here was 1989. It's five years before that. So what does this tell us about Biden? 
and where Biden was in these debates. I don't know that the speech itself tells us anything about Biden that would be, we wouldn't talk about anybody who was a leading political figure in 1989. It was a time in which the rhetoric around drugs was a tool for partisan political battle. The 1988 drug bill that is referred to, that created the drug czar, was part of a democratic effort to strengthen the democratic reputation going into the 1988 election, in which George Bush was running against Michael Dukakis. You know, in, the, in 1988, uh, Lee Atwater, working for George Bush, brings forward you know, the revolving door of, of the guy on parole, the infamous guy whose name I can't remember right now, who was the model of- Willie Horton. Willie, Willie Horton, Willie yeah. Horton. thank Willie you Horton. very much. You know, sure. a, a name that I should not have forgotten. But Willie Horton was the symbol of liberal Democrats let them out of prison that the Republicans dredged up. And so Biden is responding to that a year later as well in the effort to challenge Republican claim that they are the, the ones that are going to protect the public from the menace of crime and drugs. Politically, there were no incentives, politically, no incentives for the Democrats to soften, to use the word, their position on drugs and crime. All of the incentives were to be tougher. And so you Dan, got this right. kind of arms race, right? That's right, Dan. And tell the story, uh, Eric, of how that arms race actually played out in congressional markups. You've you've told this before, and it's so revealing about how uh, they came up with uh, the mandatory minimum sentences, I guess, for the first time in that 88 crime bill. Well, the mandatory minimums were in the 86 crime bill, the 86. Drug Abuse Act okay. of 86, when they, mm -hmm. they got enacted. This was after the death of Maryland basketball star Len Bias. And there's this intense part effort in the House to put together an anti-drug bill. That was a cocaine overdose. A cocaine overdose. And in the four weeks of the end of July, the beginning of August, the Democrats dominating the House are having every committee put something together. And the House Republicans in the, in the crime subcommittee said, well, where's the getting tough? Where's the getting cracked down? They got a couple of Democrats to agree there should be mandatory minimums. In, and so they had a majority in the crime subcommittee. An original approach was that I gave to, to our members was focus on the, the kinds of highest level traffickers that the DEA has identified. People who deal hundreds of thousands of doses a month for at least six months. And a congressman from Louisville, Kentucky, Romano Mazzoli says, well, we don't have drug dealers that big in Louisville, Kentucky. And everybody else says, yeah, that's right. This law isn't any good because it won't be used in my little town. But of course, nobody went to Louisville to do an international drug deal. They went to Miami or Houston. You know, the fact that this didn't happen in Louisville was of no consequence, but that's not the way the members saw it. We ended up then reducing the quantities that triggered the, the mandatory sentences. When the bill went over to the Senate, the maximums went from a maximum of 40 years to life or a maximum of 20 years to 40 years, so that low-level quantities were getting kingpin-level sentences. So the trigger quantity of five grams of crack cocaine, you know, the weight of a few pennies, you know, a few hundred dollars worth, could get you 
uh, you know, a 40 year sentence. So the very low level offenders were, were in subsequent years being swept into the system and tens of thousands of people, I should say, you know, six, eight, 10,000 people a year were getting these kinds of sentences. Cumulatively, this has been hundreds of thousands of people in the last you know, 30 years have gotten these kinds of mandatory sentences. It seems that one of the big paradigm shifts between then and now is that in the rhetoric back then, in Biden's speech and Bush's speech, all of the users were considered criminals. They needed to be held accountable. It was not really talked about significantly as a health issue. Right. Uh, That's right. And maybe an education issue, but not a health issue. Right. Biden later, you know, did talk about drug users as people who didn't have self-esteem. Um, this was in six or eight weeks later after this speech. So there were understandings of psychological factors that certainly he had. I mean, he had a more, much more sophisticated understanding than is revealed by the speech that he gave in, in September of 89. I actually think we have a clip of that exchange about why people continue to use drugs. And it is kind of interesting to listen to. It's, it's a it, different tone than in the um, speech we just played. But um, Mark, do you have that clip we can play? Why do people keep taking drugs? those who do. In most all cases, it's because they have a relatively low self-esteem and their self-image is not very much intact. That's usually why. I'm sure there's exceptions. And just think from your own experience, those suited lawyers who go for methadone, those people you know in your own family or other families who have a drug problem are not junkies out in the street laying in a gutter. All those who you know who consume drugs on a regular or even an irregular basis, ask yourself from your own experience, how happy do you think they are with themselves? What is their self-esteem, their self-image? And so when you get down to the root of this thing, you get to the question of what the notion of recovery has to do with criminalization. I don't know any alcoholic, and unfortunately in my family, I know alcoholics. I don't know any who has a positive self-esteem that would be stronger or weaker because it was legal or illegal. So that's interesting. I don't know how that low self-esteem argument would play today. It sounds... Um, a, a bit uh, tinny to me, Eric. Um, but he does also at the same time seem to accept that maybe the martial rhetoric and pro-prosecution imprisonment uh, thrust of the speech he had just given six weeks earlier was not the totality of the answer to the drug problem in the country. Right. I think he still felt that deterrence was a, a real tool that punishment could bring to prevent people from using drugs or discourage people from using drugs. He certainly remained adamantly opposed to legalization. But I was struck that there was a more sophisticated approach in his mind than what was being expressed in the Marshall speech for partisan political consumption that we heard at the beginning of the broadcast. And this was during a debate he had with you, correct? Tell us about that. 
It was a debate organized by the Student Bar Association on the question of the legalization of drugs in October 1989, and it was Biden versus me. Biden was, of course, opposed. I had become convinced that legalization was the only way we could minimize the harm from the use of drugs. I didn't think we could eliminate drugs. I felt we had to eliminate the crime and eliminate the harm to users. And Biden was willing to debate it for an hour and 45 minutes. Who won the debate? <laughs> I, I don't know that the audience would, you know, shifted its position. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll say, I'll, I think it was a draw. <laughs> okay. Very diplomatic of you. But Eric, you were a, a voice in the wilderness. I mean, there were not really? a lot of people and certainly not a lot of people in the mainstream who were supporting legalization at that time. So we're obviously in a very different place now where marijuana is legal in a number of states where Joe Biden's views, which we'll get to, have changed fairly dramatically. Walk us through the shift, how these changes in attitudes took place. Clearly, it would have had something to do with the level of crime in this country. Certainly, violent street drug markets that we saw in the late 80s were so destabilizing to so many communities. You know, you had to you know, realize that, you know, cocaine was way more valuable than gold and you didn't sell it in jewelry stores with bulletproof glass and alarm systems and surveillance cameras. It was sold, uh, you know, on the street. And if you were selling it, you needed to have a gun to protect yourself. And ideally you needed to have somebody who was willing to use it. You had a business because it was illegal, you can't, couldn't let somebody quit the business because then they were a potential informant against you. If somebody stole from you, you couldn't report them to the police. So how did you enforce your business? And so violence was really an intrinsic part of the way the business operated. And as the business matured, the violence went down. As people recognized, no, you better not rob this drug market because they're going to track you down. They didn't, you know, the people who were going to come after you didn't have to follow due process. They knew that they had to maintain their reputation and they were going to use violence to do it. So the violence did go down. Drug use also has gone down. And crime in general across all categories has gone down dramatically uh, in the last 25 years. At the same time, then, as the prison population has gone up, people become increasingly concerned about that. Going to prison is not good for getting your own self-esteem up, to use a term we were just describing, and you're not, you're not more likely to recover. You don't, you're not more qualified for a job. And so we're recognizing that thinking differently about punishment, rehabilitation, recovery, we're approaching as a society and as a culture these questions very, very differently. Big changes, of course, were uh, medical marijuana in 1996, Medical marijuana got a million more votes than Bill Clinton did in the 96 election in California. So medical marijuana, you know, has now passed, you know, I, you know, 25, 30 states. The House Democratic leadership is bringing, you know, you know, in September, later this month, full legalization of marijuana to the floor of the House. And then ultimately, there were economic issues that started to bring uh, the states, especially red, red state politicians, over to the criminal justice reform side, correct? 
the cost of imprisonment continued to squeeze other kinds of activities out of state budgets that couldn't go into deficit. So from Louisiana, North Carolina, across the country, state legislatures began to say, you know, can we reduce prison populations? Can we increase community supervision? What is really just punishment if somebody is addicted to drugs? What is just punishment if somebody is selling drugs who is a drug user? And so we, we began to think much more differently. And we began, of course, with the opioid epidemic as well to, as that spread into the white community, the racial thoughts about what the drug problem also changed. We touched on this a little bit before, but the, the 94 crime bill, you mentioned that the, the mandatory minimums came in with, in 86. Biden pushes and is, a chief, is the chief sponsor, I believe, of the 94 crime bill. What did that do? Did, they, did, did that add to the mandatory minimums? Did it expand the prosecution focus of the criminal justice system in the drug war? No, but it did have, it, it provided a lot more money for prisons. It created incentives for what were called truth in sentencing. States were encouraged that if a judge imposed a sentence, that a prisoner would have to serve 85% of the sentence. It was a way to eliminate uh, the role of parole that had been common in many states. In many states, if, if you were sentenced to 20 years by a judge, a parole board would re could begin to review your case after some number of years and let you out way ahead of the 20 years if it felt the parole board felt that you'd been rehabilitated as a way to rationalize across all the different judges and counties in a state a more uniform form of justice. And that got changed by the so-called truth in sentencing provisions that uh, Republicans advocated and that I think were a key part of the 94 crime bill. And so there's a lot of money available to states for prison construction if they adopted this 85% serve your sentence, quote unquote, truth in sentencing provision. When did you get the three strikes and you're out provisions that became the kind of rallying cry of the so-called tough on crime politicians? Yes, my, my, there was a, uh, originally it was a California initiative dealing with violent crime. And then it was violent crime and other serious crimes. And then it was violent crime, serious crimes and repeat offenses of minor crimes. And so three strikes of two prior convictions of a, of a shoplifting offense could end up being your third strike, and people were getting sentences like 20 years for that kind of strike versus life sentence if it was your third offense for burglary or something like that. And this came out of California. Again, it had this, it was a great slogan, three strikes and you're out. It was part of the, the sense that the judiciary was dominated by liberal judges and people took advantage of loopholes and wily defense attorneys were uh, manipulating the system, there was a great deal of cynicism then about the justice system and its effectiveness. And so these were ways to take the discretion away from judges. The consequences, of course, became that prosecutors acquired a great deal of power to help sense, create sentences and impose long sentences. And these led to dramatic increases in both state prison populations and the federal prison population. Just just looking at, at the federal 
1986, the federal prison population was about 36,000. By the height of it during the Obama administration, it had gone up to 215,000. Very, very dramatic change. Eric, what is your sense of where Biden is today on these issues? Does he acknowledge he went too far back in those days? Has he apologized? Where, where, what's his head at? Where's his head right now on these sorts of issues? Mike Biden has certainly walked back from the most extreme positions he's taken. He opposes the death penalty. He opposes mandatory minimum sentences. Uh, those are, you know, huge changes for him. Uh, he doesn't support the legalization of cannabis, as most of the House Democratic Caucus does, but he supports decriminalization of cannabis. He picked as his vice presidential candidate, Senator Harris, who is the prime Senate sponsor of the marijuana legalization legislation pending in the Senate. So in many respects... Has he apologized? He, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, have, I haven't heard him directly address or say, I was wrong back then. I think he has, in one area, you know, I would, whether it's a, an apology, certainly a, an acknowledgement that he was wrong, and that is particularly the disparity between crack and powder cocaine, the 100 to 1 disparity, which he said, not only did he support, but he wrote that law with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and he was and he was wrong. But I wanted to ask Eric, and we're kind of in, in an interesting moment politically right now on the issue of crime, because on the one hand, you know, these issues seemed to matter during the Democratic primary because there were a lot of Democrats, uh, Cory Booker and and other more progressive Democrats who went after uh, Biden on this issue. And obviously, he got through it because he's the nominee. It did not seem as if criminal justice was going to be a big issue in the uh, in the general election. Now we have, in the wake of George, the George Floyd killing protests and some rioting and violence, and there have been significant spikes of violence in uh, many American cities, Donald Trump using in his phrase, law and order as his pri- almost his primary campaign issue right now and trying to depict Joe Biden as soft on crime, which is kind of irony, uh, an irony in light of the conversation we're having right now. How do you see all of that playing out in the general election? Dan, I wish I was a better election prognosticator than, than I know I have been. I think that goes for all of us. <laughs> That's right. I guess maybe the better question is, this puts Joe Biden in kind of an unusual position, doesn't it, Uh, given his history on the issue of crime and, you know, where he then needed to move within his own party and then how he might have to adjust right now, given what Trump is doing. So I think what you can certainly say is that Biden has a very long track record in thinking about the criminal justice system about what works and what doesn't work. He has been close to law enforcement. He has, as a legislator, sponsored many experiments in how to address law and order issues in the streets. What we're facing now are two very, very particularized situations. One, the, the, the increase in homicides, which to what extent those are related to 
beefs among gangs, to what extent are they related to the proliferation of firearms? To what extent are they related to the sense that, that we don't have to follow the rules because we don't trust the police? That's one piece of it. The other is the rioting associated with protests, which is being instigated, I think, by people who are not protesters per se, because the, the families and the, of, of those who've been killed don't want protest. The, the friends and neighbors of those who've been killed in these police shootings don't want riots. They want nonviolent protest. They're lamenting violence that struck down their family member. And so the, the rioting is a very, very specialized kind of crime problem. It's highly localized. It's not the, uh, a fear that most Americans have for their neighborhood, for very good reason. And the homicides are very, very concentrated in the, in the big cities that you've spoken of. So crime overall is dramatically reduced. Burglary, robbery, aggravated assault, rape, these crimes are all dramatically reduced from where they were 30 and 40 years ago. We're much, much safer. And to the extent that Biden uh, can take any credit for that as having been a legislator, that might be a piece of what he may talk about in the coming weeks. You know, it's, uh, I mean, this is uh, working on multiple levels here. On the one hand, you have Trump hitting the law and order issue, pointing to the crime in inner cities and the spike in homicides and hammering Biden as a captive of the left. And at the same time, Trump is championing as one of his great accomplishments, criminal justice reform that undid a lot of what Biden helped put onto the statute books. So well, the, principal, the principal piece of the First Step Act was to make retroactive the 2010 sentence reductions of the Fair Sentencing Act that President Obama signed, which changed the quantities of the mandatory minimums for cocaine, uh, for crack cocaine that had been in the 1986 legislation. That was one of the big pieces of what were, it was in the Fair Step Act, the First Step Act that Trump signed. Um, By the way, I think that one, it went from 100 to 1, 100 to 1 disparity, to one, 18 to 1. 18 to 1. And I know that Biden is now saying that he wants to eliminate the disparity altogether. We'll see. For, for good reason. But it is interesting that that Trump is is while while hitting Biden for being soft on crime is promoting what he accomplished to roll back the tough on crime measures that Biden helped put onto the record. And we should books. say one more thing, Mike, which is that we're talking now about street crime. We're not talking about corporate crime. We're not talking about environmental crime. We're of not course. talking right. about massive consumer fraud. We're not talking about, you know, it's, it's crime of poor people that Trump wants to crack down on, not the crimes committed by the wealthy and those with the opportunities, not the crimes that involve hundreds of billions of dollars, but the crimes that involve a few hundred dollars. That's part of the difference that we're seeing. Yep. And he's got uh, William Barr there to help him uh, implement that uh, disparity. But just to close out, I'd like to play the last clip we have from that Biden speech on September 5th, 1989, because uh, it sort of 
really on a personal level shows the way Biden was thinking about these issues or at least talking about these issues. And uh, Mark, do we have that clip from the end of the uh, of the speech? To put it in very personal terms for a moment, Joe Biden, me, I would settle for a world in which I could worry about the same kinds of things that my parents worried about, in which I only had to worry about the grades my children got in school rather than the drugs they're being exposed to, in which I only had to worry about the prices my wife had to pay at the supermarket instead of fearing that she might get mugged by a junkie in the parking lot as she loads her groceries into the car. Yeah. The, the junkie in the parking lot imagery, that to me is uh, sort of, you know, reminiscent of the uh, reefer madness uh, imagery of the 1930s. Yeah, that was, you know, one of the, the most egregious, heartrending exaggerations of the kinds of fears that people actually had to worry about. In most parts of the country, people are not robbed loading groceries into their cars. That was never a part of the crime problem. If you were walking from a bodega in uh, Brooklyn, New York, in a certain neighborhood, you were much greater risk. But the folks who were, you know, at the supermarkets going into, into their parking lots in their cars, they were not at risk. This was a real exaggeration of the and exploitation of the fears that, pe- that people had in those days. It's fascinating because, you know, that is imagery. He, he's depicting a scene, you know, in an American suburb, you know, with your station wagon at the supermarket. And of course, that specter is being raised all over again by Donald Trump about the American suburbs. And there's a reason for that. And that is because it is suburban voters who have determined elections for a very long time in this country. Right. And I I just was going to add that 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 imagery, the junkie in the parking lot, is Biden's version of George H.W. Bush's bag of crack sold across the street from the White House. The idea was to hit home that this is everywhere. It's uh, it's threatening all of you. And we need to get behind the martial rhetoric and imagery that uh, the drug war was giving us. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us uh, down this trip uh, down memory lane, (laughs) Um, uh, but uh, clearly still relevant to uh, the public discussion today. Thanks. And Mike, thanks very much for inviting me to join you on Skullduggery today.